This is the Passive Real Estate Podcast, the premier podcast for passive real estate investors. Matt Jones interviews experienced passive investors who share their industry secrets and active investors who show you different ways to invest passively. I'm Matt Jones, and today on the Passive Real Estate Podcast, I welcome Melanie McDaniel. Melanie is the founder of Freestyle Capital Group, a boutique private equity firm and freestyle fund, a customizable fund. She partners with passive investors to invest in private equity real estate transactions across a variety of asset classes, operators, geographies, and investment strategies. Melanie offers diversified investment opportunities and aims to have a personal relationship with each investor. Welcome, Melanie. Uh, what else would you like our audience to know about you? Oh, I don't know. Some people care that I uh, was nomadic for a while and I created a lifestyle doing what I do so I can work from a computer anywhere in the world. I have since settled in Austin. I still travel quite a bit, but that's kind of part of my story as well. Um, I also was a W-2 earner for most of my life and read, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad and changed everything. So a lot of people, that's part of my story that people find intriguing that I, you know, pulled chocks, gave up that federal retirement and jumped off into entrepreneurship and real estate. So I guess. Yeah, you, uh, I love your backstory. You have, you're definitely a badass in my mind uh, with all your experiences. Uh, but uh, uh, so how did you get started then into real estate investing? So after I read Rich Dad Poor Dad, I did their uh, really expensive coaching program. Um, and I was kind of just thinking small, right? Single family house, one asset. I was super thinking small. I did buy a single family house in my self-directed IRA, just like a turnkey property. So that was my first investment. Um, and then I decided to leave the job. I used being a real estate agent as a stepping stone because I had spent all this money. I learned all this stuff, but I was still afraid to pull the trigger on my own stuff besides that one little house. So I became an agent and I watched a lot of my investor buddies buy their first rental, their quadruplex. I sold up to a sixplex. And then after two and a half years, I built a team because I, I had a meetup and I provided a lot of value to the local market. And that was before these meetups got really popular. I kind of competed with the local RIA. So I was one of the only ones doing it. So it was a really good platform for me then. I don't know if agents could get away with that now because there's just so many, but that's kind of how I started, built the team. And then as I was building my team, doing real estate and the smaller stuff, I was also learning. I learned how to buy apartments, eventually bought my first 24 unit. We closed January of 2020. <laughs> I did my first LP syndication in 2019, December and kind of quit being an agent in December of 2019, became fully nomadic, moved to Thailand to launch this business, Freestyle Capital Group, and kind of lean more into working with passive investors and being kind of the capital partner on CoGP deals, which now fast forward, I have a fund. So um, actually I'm on my second fund, already looking at what the third fund looks like. So yeah, it's always fantastic. a progression and it's always pivoting. Like I used to say I would never start a fund. Then I did an SPV, which is a mini fund. And then I said I would never start a bigger fund. Well, then I did. And I until recently said I would never do a blind fund. And now that's the, the next one that I'm considering. So it's it's you can only expand as far as you push that envelope. Right. And it requires uh, learning the people, the network you have and just the doing. And you learn OJT, <laughs> learn on the job sometimes. So uh, how would you describe the differences are between the SPV, the uh, you know bigger fund versus a blind fund? So the SPV is kind of a fund of funds. It's a single purpose vehicle, meaning when investors invest in the fund, they know what the identified asset or assets are. So for me, it was one asset. 
It was a 108 unit in San Antonio. So they knew exactly what the deal was they were investing in. But because we were coming in with a large check, I was able to negotiate better splits for the investors. So it made sense for them to come through the fund rather than going direct to the deal. So it's kind of a mini fund because you open it, you raise the capital, you close it. It's done. Like I, I would never, I could, could never put more deals or money in that fund. So it's called a single purpose vehicle. Um, so that's one, that was the first one. It's the easiest to bite off if you want to stick your toe in in the world of funds. That's the first one to do all the learning because you still have to do all the regulatory stuff, SEC filing or the exemption anyway, and then the FINRA, you know, stuff as well. So it gets you just starting down that path. And then once I kind of figured that out, learned quite a bit, then I went to the next fund, which again, had a lot of support. I am on the Avestor platform and they support these customizable funds, but I've had a lot of help just from them holding my hand along the way. I was one of their OG funds. Uh, I think I was one of the first four funds launched on their platform and now they have 50. So I got a little bit of extra hand holding because they were also learning on, on me, you know, so it was a, it was good. I learned a lot from them and that fund is over a year old now. Okay. And then the blind fund is uh, where I, I assume it's where they don't know what uh, particular deal they're going to be invested in. Yeah. Oh yeah. So the customizable fund is, is still individual deals. The investors invest in the fund, but they can allocate their funds to specific oh. deals. So that's why it's not blind on a blind fund. You created an investment thesis and my investment thesis may be, we invest in commercial real estate and X, Y, and Z market with uh, operators who have an X, Y, and Z track record and audited financials. And it's in these asset classes and maybe it's apartments and storage and triple net, just whatever. You have an investment thesis. And now when I raise capital into the fund, I can go buy anything or deploy that capital to anything within my investment thesis. So it's blind in that they don't know what individual deals or funds I'm investing in, but they know what the investment thesis is and some sort of reasonable return projection based on what I'm gonna go out and deploy the capital into. So that's why it's fine. Then there's also open and closed funds, open uh, and evergreen. Attorneys don't love those so much. Um, and there's more regulatory stuff, more hoops to jump through, but that means it's just ongoing forever. It could be a fund that's open for 10, 15, 20 years, right? Where a closed fund is like, okay, you open the fund for one year, you raise the capital, then you close the fund and get to work. Um, so that's the difference there. There's, uh, yeah, the fund world, it's, it's a new world. There's a lot to learn for sure. Mm -hmm. And not all funds are created equal. You know, as a passive investor, how can someone determine like what is a good fund to invest in versus not? Well, they need to know what they're investing in. What are, what are the, what's the asset? Are you investing in an angel fund, VC fund, hedge fund, uh, real estate fund? Who are the, the managers of the fund? What are they investing in? Like, I mean, it's kind of like picking stocks, right? Do you even know who the executive team is and what fees they're charging? No, you don't. But in a fund, you can ask for financials, you can ask for audited financials, track record, uh, you know, do your due diligence so you can do the best at making your decision to invest in that fund or not. I don't know if that answered your question fully, but yeah, well, uh, there's a lot to it, essentially. But uh, so so you as the fund manager, it, it sounds like you're finding and vetting the syndication sponsors as well as the deals. Like, how, how do you determine uh, you know, what is a good sponsor versus not? So, I mean, I go to a lot of conferences and meet a lot of people. I know a lot of people in the space. So I, I like to just talk to people, right? But know people in the space and how the funds are doing. I look at track record for sure. Are they on fund one? Are they on fund three? How long have the managers been in the business? How long? Because some of them, like what I'm seeing right now, a lot of syndicators 
are starting funds because they've been syndicating, 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 syndicating. And now they're just like, it would be so much easier if we could just go buy what we needed to buy, pay cash, finance it later, like do their model, but, but faster. So some of these guys, it might be their first fund, but they've syndicated 30 deals. So I look at track record and then the operators, you know, just themselves as humans, it's, it's amazing how you can do your best to bet somebody, but when who hits the fan or the economy changes, you really get to see not just who are the good operators, because you get to see that, but you get to see like under the gun, how do these people make their decisions? So you can only vet and know these people to a point, but you win at the decision and then you're stuck with them, right? So it's so important to spend the time on the due diligence. So me, what I offer people in my fund is I'm out there flying all over the place, going to all these conferences, meeting all these people, getting the behind the scenes gossip, uh, trying to figure out who else is invested, getting the dirt, whatever dirt I could get, the dirtier, the, <laughs> you know, whatever. I'm assuming if they're squeaky clean, then I'm missing something. So um, I'm okay with people who have had a rough past or, you know, had some past learning experience, like 2008. If you went, you filed bankruptcy, tell me the story. Because it's not a no, because they're probably smarter than someone who never went through 2008. They were still in college or something, right? They don't know. But people who went through 2008 and lost everything, they probably don't make the same mistakes again. So I'm actually, it's not just a deal breaker. So the the sponsor, the jockey, right, is super important. And then the asset class is huge and underwriting just the asset class and the market it's in. So that's three. And then the last thing is how the deal is structured, how many fees are being charged to at their level in their deal or in their fund, uh, you know, just all the, the the promotes, the the waterfalls, whatever, just making sure it's investor. I mean, operators need to get paid for sure. I'm okay with fees, but it needs to be investor friendly. Meaning if I'm writing them a large check, I want to make sure I have some sort of a pref that I have some sort of, I get paid first, right? They're going to get their probably an asset management fee to do their day-to-day -day stuff. But for the big stuff, I want to see that my investors get their prep first, get their capital back. And then let's talk about, you know, the upside and it, it needs to go in that order. So I want my sponsors to earn more than, than their share, right? I want my investors to get their money back first and, and some return. So every deal is kind of different and it's just, spending time in the space, talking to people, looking at structures. And then if I don't like it, doesn't mean it's a no, I can go restructure it or at least have that conversation for negotiations. Real estate is all about adding value to other people. An easy way to do that is to share this podcast with someone you know who wants to do more passive real estate investing. Also, subscribe and leave a review. Now, let's get back to the episode. And then between the sponsor, the asset class, and the structure of the deal, what do you think is the most important? The jockey. If you get the sponsor right, then they probably picked a good asset. They probably are in a good geography. They probably structured the deal fairly. Yep, that's fair. That makes sense. Because if you pick a great asset class in a great market and the jockey is riding backwards, uh, you're not going to win the race. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if they're, if they're clowning, they're not like going to take it to the end. But if you have a horse, an asset that's like, you know, causing trouble, you know, horses, they're like really big dogs. Sometimes they can just be naughty. If that, mm -hmm. that horse has an attitude and that jockey jumps on it and puts it in its place and they, they can go win the race, they can get that horse's attitude straightened out. Um, but if you uh, have a bad jockey, everything's bad. I like that analogy. 
So you as the fund manager, essentially, you know, how are you negotiating with uh, syndication sponsors for a little bit better return for your investors? Well, typically the bigger check I can write, the more fun I am to work with because I could have 50 people in my fund, but they only have one, one K1 to deal with, right? One investor. And that's the management of the fund that 50 investors aren't be calling them all the time. So not only do they get a big fat check, they don't have to really do investor relations. So um, they're very incentivized to work with us because it's easier to raise 3 million from one or two funds than 3 million from 110 investors. So uh, yeah. And sometimes their minimums are so high that my investors could never invest with some of these guys because they have a million minimum. Well, I can hit that and get them in this amazing institutional quality deal. So you're bringing value to the sponsor and they, they want to give you value in return, essentially. Um, and then how is how do you get paid as the fund manager? So currently, every so far, every deal in my current fund is structured differently because it's uh, customizable. Every little deal I do, I work with the operator to get favorable shares or get paid or get compensated, whatever. Um but it's, it's this gray area of compensation, right? The best thing to do is to run all of the, the upside through the fund and then take some sort of fee and a promote in the fund. So that's what the next fund will be, a little bit more standard, more institutional. Right now, I'm, I'm trying to be a syndicator with a fund with this customizable thing. So I'm running into those, you know, how do I get paid sort of questions. Um, so at the moment, every deal is structured different. But it's always about keeping the, the fees lean in the fund, first of all, but then making sure my investors are getting more money than had they gone direct to the sponsor or what am I doing, right? So um, yeah, every deal is structured different, honestly. And we can talk about some of the, the structures if you want, but. Uh, well, I'm also curious, uh, you know, for passive investors, what are typical questions that they ask you? The passive investors? Mm -hmm. For my fund, specifically it seems like a lot of the people in my database are kind of like syndication investors so they want to understand the fund the fund model you know what are the fees all that stuff which is totally totally fine because i'm that i'm i'm the same in fact i'm almost not a great fund manager because i probably don't pay myself enough <laughs> <laughs> but at least my investors are happy right so i just need to be able to write bigger checks and negotiate better with the sponsor right so my investors are happy but i also am being compensated and can put food on my table yeah so that's as far as the fund goes that's the biggest question but of course your typical uh, syndication questions who's the operator operator what's their track record uh, a lot of investors ask like how long is my money tied up uh what happens if interest rates change they and they should be asking about the debt about the team same stuff i ask they should be asking me uh if i haven't already given them all of that information and depending on what the deal is i, I do notes sometimes so they should be asking well what's the collateral or what's the guarantee what happens if the company goes out of business whatever those are the questions they should be asking um but most of them some people to go into the weeds and ask really involved questions and some people they just kind of want to know the basics like who are the operators and what's the business plan makes sense and send the money so it's just whatever investors are comfortable with and how involved they want to be because a lot of people they could be like I want to see the underwriting and you send the underwriting and it's just that it doesn't make any sense to them and then there are other people who are super sophisticated they look at underwriting and they have some very involved questions like 
what's the, you know, did they buy a, a rate cap? Did, you know, why, I, I don't know. It's different with every deal. Right now, because I do triple net, um, I'm getting a lot of questions about that because it's just a new asset class for a lot of people, industrial triple net. So they're asking, even if they're a sophisticated apartment investor, they're asking really involved questions about, okay, I don't understand how to underwrite this. I don't understand why it's a good deal. Why is there 90% bonus depreciation on a warehouse building? How do you make sure they're paying their rent and you know all the really basic questions because I'm now teaching a new asset class. So that's normal. I don't know. It's all over the place. Honestly, I don't get typical investor questions, I would say. <laughs> and so of the triple net, are you focused on industrial or retail or, or what? Definitely industrial, no retail thus far. I, I, I think franchises like strip malls with um, really known franchises are like a portfolio of Subways or Sonics or something is interesting because they're corporately backed, but just a retail strip center that's kind of a grocery store and a nail salon or whatever. I don't know anything about that. I don't want to talk about it because I don't. Office and retail strip centers are not my specialty at all. But industrial, and there's two ways to do industrial. One is a triple net, absolute triple net is even better because then the tenant's paying everything. But a seller lease back, which the seller owns the property, they're, they're selling it to us and then they lease it back from us. But these are longtime companies. And the only reason they're selling the real estate is to clean up their balance sheet because mm. a mortgage and a lease look different on a balance sheet. And if they want to go borrow and grow their company, then they need to kind of move it from the assets and liabilities, however it is in the underwriting for a business. It's just cleaner for them to have a lease instead of a mortgage. So they sell it, but it's like 15 and 20 year leases with like a 2%, 3% escalation cost. So every year their rent goes up, but it's under market, right? Our industrial rents have gone up like 7% and we're only doing a two and a half, but it's a 15 to 20 year plus like five and 10 year extension potential. So we're talking 30 years, you know, <clears throat> that this lease is locked in and corporately backed, or they have some sort of collateral that covers that. So we're not going to hold it and buy it and hold it for 30 or 40 years. We're going to sell it, but there's plenty of time left on the lease that there's a lot of buyers for that, especially when we're buying at eight and a half or higher caps. I okay. mean, there's institutional funds that'll come and like, Oh, it's above a 6% return. We'll just pay cash for that. You know, that's great for them. Um, so then there's the other way where it's like typical three and five year terms where in three years, your lease is up TJ Maxx. Uh, your rent's going up 40000 a month, <laughs> depending <laughs> on what market you're in, right? So it's like, take it or leave it. And they usually take it because the rates have gone up for industrial over the last few years. And what I love about industrial in general is you can buy the buildings at like 50 cents on the dollar for replacement costs. Hmm. So buildings built in the 60s, 70s, they're literally, you can't rebuild those things for what we're buying them for. Nice. And they're not building it fast enough to like fill the demand. Of course, this is all market specific and the operator super expensive and track record. But I really love triple net because you have one tenant and it's corporately or has some sort of collateral. So you're very well securitized. And during COVID when, you know, in apartments, which I love still, you know, fundamental to human existence is there were moratoriums and people don't have to pay their rent. Right. But when you have a business, or storage, they're not protected by the government. Oh, you didn't pay your rent? You're out. 
And by the way, I'm keeping all this equipment because you didn't pay your rent. I mean, <clears throat> same, you know, storage, it's like 30 days, you didn't pay your rent. Okay, we auction your stuff off and everything's done. There's no government's gonna step in and not let you kick your tenant out when they're not paying rent. So lots of, every asset class has its plus and its minus. At the end of the day, if there's one takeaway from this whole conversation, diversify. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any other asset classes you're excited about this year? Um, I mean, so apartments, of course, storage, of course, I've done build to rent where I think build to rent and construction are probably it's a good time to do that. I have not done development yet besides the build to rent. And those were single family homes. Um, triple net, as I mentioned, both, you know, the short term and the lease backs, and then just promissory notes with really high interest. That's kind of what I love right now. Um, I mean, I'm open to some development or land plays, but I would, I would need, I would need to, to take that deal by deal. That's fair. I mean, and, and you don't want to do every single kind of asset class and every single kind of deal. Cause if you try to do everything, you're going to do it all poorly and it yes. won't go well. Yeah. And it also depends as far as an investor goes, a passive investor, you don't want to just invest because you have an opportunity, right? You need to think about why am I investing? Am I investing for legacy wealth, preservation of principal capital? And uh, do I... Am I young? Do I have a high risk tolerance? Do I want to do these kind of higher return deals that are higher risk, like a value add multifamily or something? Um, do I want to just put money in a note because I just want the cash flow? Or am I investing with my retirement account? Why not just do a note? There's no depreciation, no benefits of real estate. I can't use it anyway. So if you put your retirement money in something that has huge depreciation, it's like, man, you just missed out on all that depreciation and you might have to pay your um, <clears throat> on the IRAs, what is that tax? The, uh, oh, why am I forgetting you? There's a, there's a tax on leveraged real estate that your IRA might have to pay. So it really depends on the investor, their goals and where the money's coming from. And if you're 80 years old, you don't need to be investing in a 10 year deal. So it really just depends on people's, what they need. Yep. Some people invest just for tax benefits, <laughs> tax depreciation. Yeah. <laughs> And some of these deals that you're investing in do provide uh, tax benefits. Like, you know, you as the fund, you get the 1K1, but you're you're splitting it up for the individual investors based on what they invested. Yes, for sure. Excellent. So um, uh, what's a mistake that you've uh, encountered with uh, uh, your fund that, uh, you know, you've, you've uh, overcome and how was it handled? A mistake. Or a problem. Well, yeah, I would say the first deal in the fund, it's a multifamily, it's active, so I can't give too many details on it. That one, because it was a little bit heavier lift than the team I think was ready for, which I, you know, with their track record and how many deals they've done, I would have thought they would have been ready for it. I didn't have any doubt, but it's turning out that uh, it was a little too big and this asset class, the permit process was twice as long as they expected. And then with the, they bought a rate cap, but interest rates still went up, you know, until it hit the cap and their cap, their cash flow is nothing. We've never had a distribution from that property. So it's not mm. even stabilized yet. So, but that's, you know, the reality. I, and people who aren't talking about these things, uh, if, but I don't know, they're just not being honest, but I don't know anybody who's active doing real estate that didn't get caught up somehow with this interest rate thing that we're dealing with. So that one would be the one concern. The rest of them are still on track doing their thing. 
the build to rent, obviously it's dirt. It's not throwing off any cash flow, but they're just doing the building. So we'll come online by the time interest rates are back down. Hopefully uh, timeline wise, it seems to work out. Storage just closed and that's underway during on stabilization. Oh my, I did do a multifamily that paid distributions early and we've had two already. We only closed in October or something. So it's not all doom and gloom, but that's why you're in a fund and you diversify, right? Because not everything's going to be perfect and some things are going to knock it out of the park. And the best thing you can do is make the right decision at the beginning. <laughs> so, because after that, you're just along for the ride. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. So uh, we're almost out of time, but are you ready for a speed round? Oh, sure. Okay. So what's your favorite part about passive real estate investing? Uh, checking my accounts and seeing my money in there. And uh, what's the greatest lesson that you've learned about passive real estate investing? The bigger this platform somebody has, the more skeptical I am of their morals <laughs> and values. Especially if they have a training program. Yes, that's that's fair. You want to invest with somebody who's currently successful in whatever uh, they're, they're preaching. Uh, what's a book that you can recommend to passive investors? Ooh, uh, Passive Investing Made Simple. Anthony Vicino and Dan Kruger wrote it. They're my buddies. They're syndicators up in Minnesota, but they wrote a very digestible book for passive investors. It's very readable. And so I always, I, I bought boxes of their books to give to people. So that would be the one I would have people start with. Excellent. Yeah, that's a good one. I have it as well. All right. Uh, and then how can our listeners get in contact with you if they want to learn more about what you have going on? My website's Freestyle Capital Group, so that you'll find me there. I'm all over the socials, whether I'm Melanie Invests or Freestyle Capital Group or whatever. I just launched my TikTok channel, so oh. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Um, I If people just Google my name, they'll they'll find me. But Freestyle Capital Group's a good place to start, I guess. Great. Anything else, uh, last that you want to mention to our audience? Um, I would say... There are a lot of people sitting on the sidelines right now, but it's kind of one of the best times to buy, even if interest rates are high, just get debt that you can refinance because prices are coming down. So I don't, don't be afraid to invest, but definitely be more scrutinizing of your teams and your deals. All right. Excellent. Well, thank you, Melanie, and have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Subscribe to this podcast to stay updated on new episodes. Leave a review to let us know that you enjoy the content. There are tons of ways to invest in real estate that you can explore by reading Matt Jones's book called Book About Real Estate. It summarizes many top real estate books all in one. Find it on Amazon, Audible, iTunes, Google Play, or barnesandnoble.com. If you want to learn more about passive real estate investing, go to hawkwingcapital.com.